Hello, welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. First, the good news. Boris Johnson is out of hospital and convalescing at Chequers, the Prime Minister's country residence. Now the bad news. The Office for Budget Responsibility has warned that the UK could now be facing its worst recession in 300 years if the lockdown continues until the summer. The government is under pressure to start talking about how it would go about easing the lockdown, what's been called its exit strategy. How could it work? What are the risks? What are the trade-offs that the government will have to make on all our behalfs? We'll take a look at the tough choices that the government is facing. And by the way, if you're interested in more on the big issues facing government, you'll enjoy our new sister podcast, IFG Live. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get this inside briefing, or at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Back to today's podcast. Giles Wilkes, IFG Senior Fellow and former advisor to Theresa May, is with us. Giles, you were number 10 as an economics advisor. Did scientists get much of a look in back in those days? Oh, we tried to meet scientists as often as we could. We have this excellent think tank, if you like, attached to the government called the Government Office for Sciences. And we'd call them in and try to look through their thousands of pages of reports all the time about the future of mobility or how the energy system was changing. But Never anything like this. But no, Patrick Valance is an impressive guy and um, it's always been a pleasure working with him. He must be the busiest man in government now. Well, maybe maybe not completely. He's the government chief scientist, head of it. Go, go science, as they call themselves. There's no absence of scientific advice if you want to ask for it. The trouble is the subject is um, almost infinite. You can't possibly cover it all. And you're normally dealing with um, occasional amateurs like special advisors such as myself. So asking the right question is still the real art. That is a really, really interesting point. Alex, Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service, is also with us. Hi, Alex. Hi. Number 10 has been without a prime minister and until very recently without its chief advisor, uh, Dominic Cummings, who's been self-isolating. What will that have felt like in number 10, which is normally so packed with people running around? Yeah, I think it would have felt very, very different. Um, Even the people who are there will have been uh, staying a good distance uh, away from each other. One of the the sort of extraordinary things about number 10 is how intimate it is as a building. And as you say, people are rushing here, there and everywhere. Um, It's also a building that's kind of very responsive to what's going on around it. In the middle of a crisis, you you can feel the electricity in the air in calmer periods. It's a kind of calm, stately a stately environment. So it would have been a very, very strange place to work these last last few months. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Sarah Bosley, the health editor of The Guardian. Sarah, welcome. Hello, Bronwyn. I know these are incredibly busy times for you. So thank you a lot for being with us. Tell me, you've been the health editor of the paper for over a decade. Where would you rank this in what you've covered? It's quite extraordinary. I have covered a lot of really, really interesting stories. And um, mostly, though, the epidemics I've dealt with have been overseas. So I covered Ebola, for instance, in West Africa and Zika and such things, um, AIDS as well. But this is just something that we could never have imagined. And we've been told about pandemics um, we've been told so many times that pandemics are likely that we're going to have one, but I don't think anybody foresaw the reality of that, including the government, actually. I mean, this really brings it home, doesn't it? Whereas some of those, uh, uh, Ebola, for example, um, it was a disease of, of Central Africa. And uh, I can imagine writing about that. That doesn't really hit home to people in Britain, whereas this is touching absolutely everyone's life. Yes, I, it, it was incredibly frustrating writing about Ebola in West Africa because, of course, you couldn't make that connection very often. Um, and even worse, when it's in the DRC, nobody really wanted to know. But this one, 
suddenly, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of it, every all of us. So um, it's a whole different thing to be covering. And at times like this, people are really desperate for information they can trust, or at least uh, quite a few people are. I have to say there are some out there who are, who are not at all interested in uh, uh, trustworthy information. But where do you think the government's been doing well on that front and where not? Well, I think they've been trying, but they... First of all, they're not very sure of what they ought to be doing themselves sometimes, I think. Um, and some of the information they're putting out is a very much um, paternalistic, well, just um, do what we're telling you to do and don't really think too hard about, uh, about you know, the rights and wrongs of it. I'm not sure that we get enough detail, enough science, um, and that we're convinced enough of, of what they're telling us. Let's turn to some of these hard choices facing the government. And I want, I want to look at the, some of the questions that have been raised about health and, and science right at the beginning. We've heard a lot of warnings about the risks to the nation's health if we start lifting the lockdown now. And we've had a week of really eye-watering economic predictions about uh, the, the catastrophe, the economic catastrophe that could be coming if um, the lockdown goes on for much longer, or even just with what we've had so far. So, Sarah, I, I wonder if you can take us into the heart of the decision that the government has to make about this lockdown. Um, what do we know first about whether the disease is being contained? Well, it is looking as if the numbers may be levelling off. Um, it's really quite hard to tell because the data is collected in strange ways. We don't have. We all know the, much more about how death figures are collected than we ever used to, but they don't. It, 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 some of them, there's really quite a lag, isn't there? There really is. Um, and the, sorry, some of the data scientists are really quite frustrated by this because you don't get data by date of death. You actually just get it when it's reported. So it's a bit of a mishmash all over the place. And then, of course, we're not getting the data from the community and from the care homes, particularly at the same time. So there was a bit of a look back uh, recently. The um, ONS published data, I think, up until early April. And that really revealed a different picture from the one that we had. Um, so we're, we're not sure where so we are. Were, the, the Office of National Statistics, they're, they're looking at total deaths, um, even if in some cases those haven't been attributed to uh, COVID-19 because uh, it wasn't on the death certificate because someone wasn't tested. And, and that showed a much higher rate of deaths than was it the, the people dying just in hospital, didn't it? Yes, it did. And it so what you have to look at there is is the excess deaths, as they say. And so obviously you've got a background rate of how many people are going to die anyway. And then you look at what's happening on top of that. And what we have heard, of course, and it's absolutely true, is that people die with COVID-19, not necessarily of it. And that's because the people who tend to be dying are those who already have comorbidities. They've got other underlying health conditions. So this makes them sicker than they would have been, uh, but they may have been going to die of the, those things anyhow. So as you said, they, they were looking at what uh, are the, are the deaths above uh, what has been the average of about 10,000 deaths a, a week in the UK of, of all kinds of things. And they're, they're looking at the increase on that. Um, and and um, how recent are these signs that it may be slowing down? Well, um, it's it goes over the last um, week or so probably. is a little less than that. Sir Patrick Valance Chris Whit uh, and Chris Whitty do tend to be telling us that it, they think it's levelling off. Um, it's sort of hopeful signs, but nobody quite wants to say it. 
And obviously, that's because you're a hostage to fortune, particularly over the Easter weekend when not all the deaths will have been reported. So there were warnings yesterday, actually, that they could rise again before they uh, we were before we're quite sure that they're plateauing. In a sense, the first decision any government has to make is about whether to try to eliminate the disease or just contain it. And we've seen uh, you know, a New Zealand government really going full out for um, el- elimination. Is elimination a possible goal for the UK at any point in your view? Well, we could have gone that way to begin with. And uh, I think we just lost our nerve, to be quite honest. And that is what we know of being because because of the lockdown that would have been necessary but, and the tracing and and, and just the the, the, the the um government being all over this yes on every case i think it was because of the yes because of the lockdown but also because it was going to be a massive effort to trace everybody who became infected they soon realized that the rate of infections was actually quite quite high um i think initially it was said that what they call the RO number, which is the rate at which people infect each other, was 2.4, they started by saying. So that's an average of each person infected will infect another 2.4 people. And now they're saying it's three and possibly more. That may sound small, but actually makes quite a big difference. So if you've got huge numbers of people being infected, and then you've got to track all of their contacts, all the people that they've um, had anything to do with uh, for the last few days. That's a very big effort. And I think they saw that and thought, I don't think we can do it. Okay, so not elimination. What about the wider impact of the lockdown on the health of the country? We're already talking sort of about other diseases that people may be dying of and may be dying at higher rates than they would have been if the NHS hadn't been focusing on on coronavirus. And, and what about the effect of poverty on health and indeed mortality? Yes, all these things are a massive worry. Um, you had the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health a couple of weeks ago saying very few children are turning up in hospital, far fewer than they would expect normally, which means that probably they're not being brought if they've um, hurt themselves or if parents suspect something's wrong. And when that is not happening, then you know there's uh, quite a lot of underlying ill health that's probably not being noticed and not being dealt with. So there will be people, it won't just be children, clearly, you know, there are loads of people out there who do have health issues that really need to be treated and probably aren't being treated. And in theory, even if it's very hard in in practice, the government has to look at this overall. It has to decide, look, are we really going to try to stop people dying of coronavirus or are we going to try and stop people dying overall? Oh, yes, it's a massively difficult balancing act to do. Uh, It's just, you know, you go one way and then you go the other. So they've emptied the hospitals. We um, had all the elective operations cancelled so that you'd have lots of empty beds. And there are actually now a lot of empty hospitals, which is good in a way because we're going to be able to deal with all those people who badly need to be in hospital because of coronavirus. And on the other hand, there are all those untreated people who will need treatment eventually. So the NHS is looking at more problems further down the line. But it's just the way you have to play this. Giles, listening to this, do you think, how do you think the government should go about this? Should it be thinking of how to, um, if you like, reduce the death rate for the, the country overall? Should this be pitted as health versus the economy? How, how should it actually frame this choice for itself? 
you can talk about this abstractly when you're designing regulations that have like 20 year impacts, say everyone points out that we do this all the time and how much we invest in road safety and so forth. There are implicit assumptions of what a human life is worth. But this is such a real human story that's in front of us every day on the news. The idea that any government minister can say that we did this for the economy, we accept that a few hundred people extra died when the faces can be put to those people, and there are people that would not have otherwise died. I just don't think it's politically acceptable to say there's a trade-off. And secondly, there's a real evidence that there really isn't a trade-off, that if you did allow the death rate to rise in order to release certain economic activity, it's possible that the reaction you'd then have to come in with later to control that fresh outbreak in case it really spirals out of control would just make it worse again. So... Um, the, the other key factor that argues against trying to sort of be too clever with these trade-offs is uncertainty. We don't know the timing of when vaccines come along. We don't know what we're currently learning about the nature of the outbreak. For example, all of these social distancing measures that we're using, be it like don't sit on park benches for too long or don't have more than an hour run, within a few months, we're going to know much more about what it is that causes transmission. This is what all this testing and tracing here and in other countries should achieve. And the more that we know that, the more that we can then ultimately look forward to calibrating our return. So in a sense, it's important to first of all, make sure that you learn at speed and keep the immediate impacts down, because it could be that there is a strategy available to us when we know more that we should be holding out for. So I would say that the advice to the government is to make sure that they're learning as fast as they can and able to experiment and learn off other countries. It's why international cooperation is so important right now. And then an exit strategy will present itself as we, as we, we kind of get a, ha- a hold on the variables that we simply haven't had a hold on. I was... I was trying to think, uh, Giles, I was trying to think earlier about sort of um, historical uh, precedent for this uh, in, in, in a sense of trying to give this government some some sort of framework or hook for uh, for taking these decisions. So I was looking back at the, the exit strategy around the foot and mouth 2001 uh, uh, outbreak and the trade-offs. It was really interesting there to see the trade-offs um, in, in that between um, the chief scientific advisor at the time who wanted to keep movement restrictions tight um, uh, longer into 2001 and the chief veterinary officer who was worried about animal welfare and the sustainability of the, the farming sector. But w- one of the, one of the other things that really struck me was just how dependent, uh, the, um, uh, sort of exit strategy and the easing of restrictions is on the science and the epidemiology. And Sarah mentioned earlier the, you know, the R number, the, the, the reproductive uh, number and all of the exit strategy around animal diseases, which I had some experience in uh, previously, was um, uh, was was based on well, it will take twenty one days after uh, infection has been uh, you know uh, removed from a premises before you can move, and that's all based on the epidemiology and the science. And we just the the big big difference now, as you were just saying, is we just don't know we don't know enough about this virus, we don't know enough about this disease to be able to take those judgment calls on uh, on on how to ease restrictions yes because i mean one of the ways of expressing it we all focus on that r0 number which is about 2.6 which is a is a real snowballing epidemic 
and, and that's how many each infected person infects someone else. But it might well be that the variability of that is very, very high, that a single barman in a busy bar that is um, shedding virus might infect 50 people, whereas um, somebody who's not showing symptoms and is just sitting on a bench might infect 0.2. And it's when we understand all of those things better, you know, the super spreaders versus everyone else, and we have the apps and all that sort of stuff. We're getting indications from the um, better treatment of this um, pandemic out in the Far East that you can, once you understand things better, deploy the tools to cautiously reopen. So we're learning at speed. I think it's we're going to have to go at this as a, a very, very carefully and slowly because it is all experimental. You know, we're looking at Wuhan, yes, that they've, they've lifted some of their restrictions and there was a point at which they imposed them again. Um, there is the same thing going on in Spain. Germany says they're going to open some schools on the 4th of, of, um, 4th of next month, I think, 4th of May. Um, but this is actually, it's got to be one tiny item at a time and see what happens because clearly nobody wants to have an, a second wave, which is what was being talked about to begin with. And I think it's very doable, but we have to bring in quite a lot of, or rather maintain quite a lot of social distancing rules. We may end up with masks as well, which actually there is not good scientific evidence for, but it does seem, first of all, to reassure people and also it does stop people tra- who are infected from transmitting it to other people. So things like that will happen. I think our lives are not going to be back to normal for a very long time, probably months. I agree with that. I think they might change forever. I mean, who knows what the workplace will be in two years' time. It's become a lot easier to work at a distance and all sorts of different social norms change. But, you know, why is it that we always shake hands? If it turns out that shaking hands makes a big difference to our health, will people just stop shaking hands full stop? It's not the biggest sacrifice. Well, I think it's culturally very sad, isn't it, if we um, end up not wanting to touch each other. Uh, Not sure how well that will go down in the Mediterranean countries. Alex, one of the things I've been dying to ask you is about the government's risk register. I mean, it has had, uh, as Sarah was referring to, pandemics at the top of or high up on its risk register, uh, hasn't it? But what does that actually mean in terms of planning? It has. But importantly, I think it's had pandemic influenza at the top of its uh, risk strategy. And all of the uh, planning around the assumption that this was a very high risk was about influenza, which has certain consequences. I mean, some things in, in terms of this response are the same in terms of the protective equipment and uh, uh, hospital capacity, but it, it, it does have some differences. And there was, you know, there, there was an assumption about how quickly vaccines would be available, for, for example, and uh, uh, and and tra- transmissibility uh, rates. So, uh, so it, it, it's it's important to make that distinction between the sort of influenza and this this different type of um, coronavirus. Uh, what it what it means in practice is that um, the the kind of the, the government machine uh, machinery is geared uh, around um, uh, you know, being able to respond to this sort of threat uh, and the both the sort of uh, civil contingencies and national security uh, architecture will be um, uh, kind of um, re- ready to respond to this 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 sort of um, issue that will drive investment decisions 
um, and uh, and uh, policy decisions uh, across the whole of government. But one of the really big questions I think that we'll be looking at in any inquiry after this is over is how effective that actually was, because some of the um, uh, some of the gaps in that that planning are definitely now being exposed. Um, if 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 a pandemic like this was was top of the risk register, should we really have been operating at a very low capacity of ventilators, for example? Well, this is exactly what I wanted to ask you. And maybe ventilators uh, are quite specific to this particular illness. But you mentioned the protective equipment. I mean, Sarah, what's what, what's your view? Uh, as uh, Alex had just been describing, you, you know, the government thought it had this uh, very high up in its uh, its sights of, of what might afflict the country. What What is the reason why it's been so hard to get the protective equipment into the country in the first place and then out into all the hospitals? I think I think it's it's right that uh, yes they did have pandemics right at the top of the agenda um, theoretically but then we had swine flu if you remember two thousand and nine and actually it really wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was going to be so I think that made people a little bit less anxious about about this um, also we've been. Um, actually sort of downgrading slightly the sort of infectious diseases side of public health England and the public health network across the country. So we have fewer labs. Um, there's been sort of centralization. Uh, hospitals don't have their own labs so much. They send their samples off to central labs. Um, this doesn't seem to have worked as well as it has done in some countries where they still had a real wariness of infectious disease, such as Germany. Um, so I, th I think that's part of it. Uh, I think um, pandemic preparedness, yes, flu is a different thing. And the vaccines would have been so much simpler because we already have a vaccine against seasonal flu. And you can imagine adaptations of that working. With this, you're just a blank sheet. And I think the other problem was that they didn't realize how severe the illness was going to be from the data that they were seeing out of China. So we heard quite early on it's 80% mild cases, 20% severe. Actually, the severe are really severe. So that means hospitalization, intensive care, and high risk of death. So I, I think we were not really prepared for the scale of and sort of pandemic that this one is. Yes, and maybe that's that's always going to be the case. But Alex, just can we just press on this point about the personal protective equipment? Um, because that has been one of the, the, the government's vulnerabilities. And we've heard all kinds of frustrations uh, going back a couple of weeks of why it just wasn't getting out there. You've, you've been in the heart of the machine. Why can these things be so hard? So uh, these kind of logistical coordination questions always are quite difficult. Um, it, it seems that there's been, uh, uh, you know, a, a pretty significant uh, problem with the PPE equipment about, you know, the, the amount of equipment being in the wrong place at the at the wrong time. Uh, one of the uh, questions that, uh, again, I think will be looked at uh, after this is uh, to what extent were ministers able to kind of pull the levers of the uh, the systems in um, Public Health England and throughout the the, uh, the National Health Service in order to uh, you know drive the system to deliver to get the get get the equipment to to, to be where it where it needed to be. Um, it is a huge logistical exercise, but frankly, it shouldn't be beyond the wit of government to be able to get sufficient numbers of masks and gowns you know in in, in the right place at the right time. So this is, in a way, this doesn't look so good at this point. Obviously, the verdict will come afterwards, but that would be a weak spot. Yeah, and I think we will also need to 
uh, be asking ourselves some pretty serious questions about whether the reforms to the health service in 2012 that created this more decentralised, uh, uh, fractured system uh, have helped or hindered in, in in a pandemic. You know, there there is some suggestion that uh, it's, that's made it harder to coordinate and harder to get you know the right the right uh, interventions in the right places. I would agree with that. I think there's another aspect to the PPE shortage, which is that. You have to remember this is a there's global demand for PPE as there is for uh, tests, for instance, test kits and the reagents, the chemicals that we need to use with them. So every country on the planet actually is competing for this stuff, which makes things much more difficult. Well, let's, let's just let me ask you about testing, because uh, here I've, I feel that there might be a case for giving the government a bit more of a pass in that the tests seem not terribly reliable or not up to the standards uh, that governments want, whether you're talking about whether someone's had a coronavirus or has got it at, at, um, at the moment. Though, as we know, the government has made this pledge to be doing 100,000 tests of some kind by the end of this month. So where, where are we on the testing? What is it reasonable to expect? Uh, well, the as you say, the aim is 100,000 by the end of the month. That's the PCR tests or the swab tests, as they like to call them. They're not including the antibody tests in that now. Um, and so that's a big ask, actually. Uh, they may get there because there's certainly one company seems to think they can ramp it up massively. That's right. Forgive me, Fisher. this is the, for the test of whether you've got it right now. This is the this is the test for whether you have it right now. It's the, the so-called swab yeah. test, where a swab's taken of the back of the throat and the nose, and you hopefully pick up virus on the swab. That goes to the lab, and the lab can, uh, can figure out whether it's there or not. That's the one sort of test, and they're now the ones we're focusing on. Um, we should have had a lot more of those to begin with, quite honestly. You no. Know, of the World Health Organization recommends this testing and then tracking the contacts, contact, sorry, and, uh, and, and testing those in turn if they show symptoms. So that sort of process was what we were doing to begin with. That, that was the contain phase of the response. And then we moved on March the 11th into the delay phase when we said, actually, this is too much testing. We can't really cope with that. But there are the two tests. We have the, uh, as you say, the, the test for the virus, which is the PCR test. The antibody test is uh, just not good enough, I'm afraid. They have been looking at these and they're between 70% effective and 50% effective. So that, that really isn't going to help us at all. Yes, and I was talking to someone in, in upstate New York uh, just last night who um had a negative test, but felt that she had had the disease, and they said, "Well, look, we're getting thirty percent false negatives on this, which is uh, yeah, absolutely not a very are. useful uh, kind of uh, test." No, and particularly if you get a false, uh, yeah, false uh, positive is also a real problem because they're the antibody tests. So if you appear to have had the virus according to the test, you might go back to work with patients and get exposed because you think you're immune and you're not. One little nugget from um, 2001 foot and mouth uh, outbreak again that I that I was reading this morning. Um, uh, the, the parallels are sort of eerie in, in some instances. There were there were 400 tests being carried out a week at the beginning of the uh, foot and mouth outbreak. That within it took a couple of months to get to 40,000, and then it took about six months to get to 200,000 tests uh, a, a week. And that was for a well known, very well established uh, test uh, for for a, a, a sort of very old and uh, and well well understood disease. And do you reckon we're going to have to live with this for years? Um, I think, yes, we are. Um, I think we are not coming out of this until we have a vaccine. And then you've got to have it manufactured in sufficient quantity actually to vaccinate everybody. So 
the whole process of doing that will uh, certainly go into next year. And also you have to see how good the vaccine is because sometimes the effect of those wear, wear off. Um, also, can you reach everybody on the planet with this vaccine? Because you'll have countries where the virus still lingers if you don't. And, and we're hearing reports of it suddenly getting into uh, some of the much poorer countries and, so, um, and then much poorer communities within those those countries and where it becomes incredibly hard, if, if at all possible, to contain it or to you know, get treatment to those people. Yes, absolutely. Let me just ask you finally what you think this crisis is going to mean for the NHS, whether it's going to be uh, politically bulletproof uh, even more from now on or whether uh, it's going to be sort of shielded from reforms that might actually make it still an even better health service. I think it's going to be pretty bulletproof. <laughs> You've only got to... Um, take note of all the clapping that goes on every Thursday uh, evening for that. Um, I cannot see any government managing to do anything with the health service that the public won't support um, for the well for, for some time to come, certainly a few years. Uh, that will make it very difficult if governments do feel that things aren't working properly. But also, uh, it's going to be, have to be a huge amount of investment, really, to build it up again back to the point even of where it was, because you, if you remember that we've run down everything that else that we were doing, so we've, we've got to reinstate all of that. And there will be a massive backlog of people, for instance, who need routine operations, who need cancer treatment um, that's non-urgent. So all of that's going to cost a lot of money too. So it's going to be coming out of this into a great wave of that other illness and affliction that it needs to, to cope with. So yes, Very likely. One, one certainty is probably uh, a lot more money for the NHS and a lot more demand for it. Sarah, thanks very much indeed for joining us. You're very welcome. Let's look more now at the hard choices the government was, will have to make in deciding whether to lift the lockdown and how it could actually do it, the practical steps it might have to take. Giles, we've had this week this extraordinary lot of numbers. We've had the Office for Budget Responsibility saying, saying this is not a forecast, but saying that Britain's economy could shrink by 13% this year due to the shutdown, the deepest recession in, in three centuries. I mean, what, what does that mean in real life? What would that feel like? I mean, what's astonishing there is not only was that the uh, the forecast, a lot of the comment I immediately saw was people saying, oh, the OBR has been way too optimistic about the bounce back, saying, well, that, that kind of a fall looks like the sort of thing the OECD and the IMF were predicting. But why on earth would we resume our previous trend as if this was just a sort of passing moment rather than something really switching big. off a light switch and switching it back on again yes yeah. exactly i mean the example i tried to give is you know like the volcano in 2010 where a certain number of things had to stop and then everyone sort of dusts the, the dust off themselves and carries on again doesn't feel like that kind of crisis and i'd love to i wish i'd paid more attention for the last two months and made point estimates of all the different forecasts that were being made because it went from being well there might be a recession it might be as bad as the financial crisis to suddenly numbers that are in requiring a whole different scale on the graph to understand. So you ask what and it just, means. Just to, give us, to, put, to put it in perspective, this is much worse than the, than the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, isn't it? It's, um, it's, uh, it can be worse than the 1930s. It's much worse in terms of speed. In a, and in a funny way, it's introduced a new propagation mechanism that you don't normally see in economies. Normally you have a kind of... Um, snowballing effect where you know demand falls people stop investing people stop spending jobs and you know one thing leads to another and there's a kind of 
um, process to it. Where here you have, and I don't want to click fingers, but just like that, the all sorts of activity is told to stop. So at the beginning of March, it was okay to walk into a shop and buy things. At the end of March, you couldn't. And that kind of change just doesn't normally happen at all. Even in wartime, what you normally get is a switch. So the American government ordering the car manufacturing business to go into the airplane manufacturing business, for example. So this kind of a sudden stop, I don't know of a decent precedent for it. Um, even the comparisons with 1918 and the Spanish flu, where I understand there were really interesting studies about how different cities in America responded in different ways and how they rebounded and so forth. There is such a different economy there, much more kind of manufacturing-based economy, that it's very hard to look through history for anything similar to what happens in our mostly service-led economy where we suddenly stop. So, so is, is there anything sensible we can say about what's going to happen to jobs in this? Because obviously we've got the government's got this furlough program. It's supporting, uh, it's paying 80% of, of, of salaries of people who are um, put on furlough up to the end of, of May. But there's, there's um, potentially big uh, leap in unemployment at that point, isn't there? If companies say, look, we, we just can't afford a... Yes. Um, we're going to have to shut down. Uh, we got we, uh, furloughs ended. We can't afford to keep these people. But we don't really know how big this is going to be. It's very difficult to get the um, the right estimate for how big that number will be, particularly when you have schemes like the, the furlough scheme, which is encouraging people to to go home and not work. I mean, one prediction I'll make is you're going to see very different figures by different countries because of their pre-existing labour market institutions. I suspect the US is going to get a very bad figure because of its hire and fire culture. Whereas at the other extreme, Germany already had established processes like Kurzweil, I think it's called, where furlough processes would happen anyway. So um, I'm not going to try and put a prediction on what our actual unemployment figures will be. And I suspect that in historical terms, a lot of it will be very, very temporary, as people are just told, look, I can't have you now, but I've still got your number. When Rishi Sunak, the, the Chancellor, did that a long, what, three weeks ago or something, three, four weeks ago, brought out all these these big uh, measures. Um, he was praised a lot for the speed and size of, of the government's reaction to this. How much of that is actually getting out there? We've heard a lot of stories, haven't we, of, of businesses finding it very hard to access these loans. It's a really complicated story because there's a kind of a breadth of coverage issue. I mean, he, he clearly did some version of the treasury triage at the beginning. What can we do quickly that reaches like 80% of people? The job retention scheme being a classic example of that. Existing bank relationships, making sure the current banks are healthy. These are the immediate things. But then you find there are patches where people are not covered. There was a gap between the smaller scheme and the larger scheme caused by state aid limits and things like that. There is the gap for the self-employed workers and company directors and so forth who pay themselves that way. And there are going to be more gaps. The most prominent one right now in my Twitter stream is the startup community that says, well, hold it, Amo, you're expecting us to be financed on the basis of a profitable history. We don't have that profitable history. We're all about the future. What can we have? And the Treasury is feverishly working into equity-style ideas for that. So there's the breadth of coverage hasn't been as good. Then there's the administrative um, take-up which is where people just can't get used to these new schemes and learn about them quickly enough, and the banks are naturally quite risk-averse. And another factor that isn't mentioned very often is that most small companies do not like or are not familiar with taking on external finance full stop. Debt is a scary word. It's became much scarier in the financial crisis. They haven't really got over that yet. They would rather do anything you know, close things down temporarily, then take on a loan that they worry might be hanging over them for the rest of their working lives. So 
some of the criticism is people who deserve a loan should be getting a loan is taking too long. And I'm sure the government's working really hard to fix that. But some of it is that people would rather choose not to operate than take on the risk of finance. So Alex, if you imagine, if you if you were um, advising a minister uh, or helping a minister who's going into a, a cabinet meeting on this, how do how does the government begin to get to grips with a decision as complicated as the uh, as the one about how to raise the lockdown? I mean, does, does every minister sort of argue his or her own departmental perspective? So I, I think there'll be a little bit of that. So, you know, the business department will have its position, the, you know, the DEFRA uh, on the sort of food supply will have its position. And, and, and so a bit of that is healthy. And that's how the British um, kind of cabinet system of government is supposed to work, that um, that. Uh, that, that different departments can kind of hash out their uh, their interests so the government can reach a, a sensible collective position. But one of the things, and I think this points to the um, uh, the, the the growing demands around at least a uh, sort of parameters for an exit strategy, is that ministers need ministers will need a framework in which to take these decisions. On what basis would you decide to allow children to go back to school? On what basis would you um, uh, would you take decision to um, to open certain shops? Uh, and so what the what the civil service i think and particularly those kind of expert advisors and and uh, and and analysts will need to uh, give ministers a a means of thinking about and assessing the different pros and cons of of different uh, of different approaches and that shouldn't just be a pure uh, you know on, on the pure epidemiology and the uh, and the science although that will drive a lot of uh, a lot of those decisions as they were saying earlier it will also be um uh, uh, you know the, the behavioral insights team got quite a bad rap early on in this crisis but it's really important that government understands how people are likely to behave to to, to measures and 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 can and can predict uh, the, the the likely reaction of uh, of the public let me just ask you about the behavioral insights because uh, you brought it up and and many people do uh, it, it, as you said the record doesn't seem great they were you know first among the people not the only ones advising the government look don't rush to bring in these measures because people won't stick by them and then people have um, enormously stuck by them and the government's been quite open that it's been surprised in a way about the adherence to that. Now, you might say that's great communications. You might say it's pure personal fear uh, on behalf of people really, really not wanting to get the virus. But um, should what is, what is um, to be generous, what is the greatest use you can make of behavioural insights? So, behavioural insights is a fantastic uh, uh, you know, a means of uh, uh, you know, helping achieve certain types of government policies, but you know, it was called it was called the nudge unit for a uh, for a reason. Uh, maybe that's a slightly facetious point, but you don't, not not the whole academic discipline, but you, the, the actual no, exactly, the behavioural yeah. insights team, team. Uh, the government's nudge um, nudge unit. Uh, yeah. But they they um uh, you don't nudge people into a lockdown. You instruct and you direct and you enforce. Now, there's a way of enforcing that, and there are ways of uh, of of encouraging compliance around that. So, um, the behavioural insights are uh, to, to, to my mind doesn't come in in terms of the the, the clear government instruction stay at home but it does uh, uh, and should shape the government's communication strategy around that so for example the behavioral insight around that would be uh, people are more likely to comply with that instruction if you uh, uh, reinforce the positives and uh, tell, uh, and demonstrate to them how many people are following the instruction. Um, uh, so behavioural insights are good when you're talking a, kind of around the margins of a decision and around the communication of, of a decision. But I suspect the government and a lot of us underestimated the power in a in a command and control situation like this of a clear um, and clearly enforced direction. 
So Charles, what about if it gets a bit messy, if the government tries a partial reversal of the lockdown? Um, how do you think that works? And, and what, all the variations out there at the moment, geographical or sector or by age group or whatever, what's, what's your favourite? In terms of the advice on how to do it from a health point of view, I'll probably accuse myself as not being a health expert. It's difficult. You see all sorts of different theories like youth first, for example. I think that's it's still difficult because every, you know, even if the rate of death is only one in a thousand of the 30 something group, that's still a, an absolute tragedy that you don't want to be on the hook for. Um, in terms of doing it by sectors, I think we need to revert to an earlier point. We need much more data about which sectors are likely to be much more spreading, which ones are able to be identified and controlled if there is a new cluster, which there will inevitably be. I'm sorry to put that in a very general terms, but I think also there are certain industries that are um, probably able to maintain their social distance much better. I'd imagine, for example, very modern manufacturing already has extremely clean operations ways of ordering itself and is very capital intensive such that it will be possible to run a modern factory which they they say you go to a modern car factory you say where's all the people and that's kind of a good sign right now so if car factories are able to operate again um, they'll probably be able to demonstrate quite quickly um, that they can get through it without becoming centers of spreading where where i'm not sure is where it comes to the just the normal retail economy the the sort of a high street um, sandwich shops are they going to have to demonstrate new procedures that means you're absolutely safe going in there and how do they how do they maintain them when thousands of people are coming and going all the time so it's going to rely on it's going to be very much a health matter i wouldn't let the economy lead it in that it's very hard to demonstrate which sectors will make an immediate difference to growth i think it has to be a health-led decision and there's also going to have to be a feedback mechanism. This is good, slightly to the point of what you'd advise ministers to do. Uh, not not all of these decisions are going to be the right ones, uh, and uh, they're going to need to have a, a, a kind of flexible enough decision making process so that you can reimpose certain types of restrictions if it's if it's proving they're That's not working. That's a really important point. Yeah. So let me ask you both two things. Finally, first one about austerity. Uh, Alex, you work for administrations which are built on the principle of austerity. When this is done, do you think we're heading for a lot more austerity? So I think the the principle, the sort of deeper principle was almost of efficiency. So, and this, this spans across uh, uh, the kind of Labour and Conservative uh, governments. Austerity was the, uh, was the kind of uh, pinnacle of, uh, of that. But I, I definitely think for a period at least, there will be uh, a, a strong drive to to build a bit more uh, redundancy and a bit more capacity into uh, in, into most of these kind of core systems. Uh, and I think that will be uh, sort of future proofing in that sense. That will be at the front of uh, ministers and and civil servants' minds when they're uh, taking and advising on on these decisions. Um, I think on on the broader question of are we in for a period of austerity or or, or not? Um, similarly to whether we're in for a period of sort of global uh, collaboration or a period of global competition, it it feels too soon to take these kind of uh, it's too soon to know how the pol- politics will settle after this and of course that's partly dependent on, on the, the well, it may not be a situation. purely political decision but no i understand what you're saying giles what do you think i was about to mi- mildly disagree with alex in that i think some there are some things that we can't uh, I, I would not be in much doubt of like i can't believe the public will be not supportive of much higher spending and it will need to have much higher spending in the health service in the areas of our social security and so forth as a result of this um, the fact that we're going to have a really big fiscal situation to manage some way or other is unarguable as well. It's 
debt is likely to rise into the triple figures as a percentage of GDP. And we're going to have to therefore look towards tax measures at some point. The, the, the argument is maybe a little semantic. It, if public spending is rising, but you're funding it with tax, is that austerity? I think it's going to be um, it's going to be austerity for certain taxpayers who may have got away with the last phase of austerity slightly easier. Um, the higher rate taxpayers may have to pay more this time round, and there will be much more public support for that than there was in the under the coalition, for example. And so focused on tax rather than on squeezing public services. I can't see where the public services could be squeezed. Uh, there's There has been a big proposed increase in capital spending and some of it might have proven unnecessary. But honestly, we're talking, I, I estimate, you know, there's got to be several percentage points of GDP to be found eventually. And it's hard to think of where that is in the public realm. Okay. And so let me ask you both then uh, more positively, what about the innovation that might come out of this? Wow. Um, shall I go first? Um, yep. I think we're going to certain that in, uh, innovative sectors have been innovating at speed anyway. I mean, the, the, the phenomenal performance of the online economy since this has happened, there's been a shifted temper towards the online giants, which is a really interesting one. Whether this means that the whole political economy around them and the control of the the online agenda shifts too is going to be a really interesting question. But I imagine we're going to have much more support for the infrastructure that you need to maintain an at-distance economy. Uh, apart from this ridiculous conspiracy theory around 5G, you'd have thought there's going to be much more support for a 5G-based economy that can support all sorts of remote working in a much more seamless way. There's going to be another look, particularly in the United States, about the um, cumbersome approval process around new drugs and um, We've, I mean, look at the speed at which we've got the vaccine development process going. If we can do this in a year, particularly if it can be deployed in a year, because nobody's ever deployed a vaccine in the hundreds of millions at speed before, that's going to be an area of phenomenal innovation too. So, yeah, there's there's going to be good um, good possibilities for innovation. The the downside, or to to give the opposite angle, it's never as simple as people think, as we've learned from the ventilator story that people were assuming that high-end manufacturers in other fields could easily move into making a ventilator. Then it, it was only later they realised quite what the health risks were, get, were to getting that wrong. So um, it's not always as simple as it looks. Hmm. And Alex, what, what, about, what about innovation in, in government? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with, with everything that, that Giles says, and, and certainly clearly there, there will be more, you know, the, the systems that we all use to communicate with each other and uh, will will um, uh, be more sort of uh, naturally uh, geared to, to virtual working. I think th the other point about government and um, people people often say this uh, during and after crises, um, but it is rarely capitalised on. I think is the uh, kind of capturing the ways that government has worked well during a crisis that have allowed problems that have bedeviled governments for five years, 10 years to be able to be solved in an instant. So um, the, the cross-departmental cooperation, the bringing people together in a crisis, the, 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 the links and the, and, the, and, the, and the pace that is forged in a crisis, um, uh, there's an opportunity there for that to be kind of, you know, bottled and, and, and applied uh, to, uh, to, 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 to those problems. I mean, it will be uh, an example of that might be uh, social care and, uh, and, and uh, you know, properly embedding social care into the wider health system. It seems, uh, uh, you know, inconceivable to me that we don't take a long, hard look at social care after, uh, after this crisis. That's great. Well, I'm sure we'll be coming back to all those points. Thanks very much, though, for them at this point.
And that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My thanks to Giles Wilkes, Alex Thomas, and especially to Sarah Bosley. And thank you all for listening too. Inside Briefing will be back next week. And our new sister podcast, IFG Live, is bringing you the debates, discussions, conversations, which we held regularly in our building just a month ago. On Monday, I'll be talking to Andy Haldane, the Chief Economist at the Bank of England, about many of the things we've been talking about today. Do get in touch with your questions ahead of that. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one. And you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, is full of lots of comment and reports, not all of it about coronavirus. Do check it all out and see you next week.